0: Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Isn't Jesus awesome? Yeah, oh, Praise the Lord. No, oh, we don't... Some of you have asked, like, where are these clips coming from? And and different folks have asked me, do we always play, you know, new to the church, do you always play a video of the story of the Bible? Now we don't spend millions of dollars uh, recording uh, clips with professional actors before every passage, but there's a video series called The Chosen. Uh, You can download a free app called Angel Studios and watch it on there or go to their website and watch it in our series that we've been doing called Chosen. The Chosen One Has Chosen You has taken some of the stories that they've looked at and then we're going and saying, what does the Bible say? They've given us the visualization of the Bible, and and Dallas Jenkins, the the creator of this, has said a lot of people watch these videos and they go and they dig deeper into the Bible, and that's what we're doing together as a church, is walking through some of that. What a lot of people have enjoyed about it is actually being able to visualize to see what would this have looked like, what might have this felt like, and some of you have heard me say uh, over this past summer, uh, just about a trip to Israel, that my wife and I were thinking about. Uh, leading and we're going to be doing that. We've got dates nailed down now and I'm inviting you uh, to consider that as an option. We're going to the Holy Land in June, uh, telling you this far ahead because I know that it takes planning. Maybe you've got kids, uh, deciding whether the kids should come. A couple of our kids are going, so if you're wondering is it safe, Uh, I don't know if you're going to make it home from church today. Uh, There could be a tornado or something, but uh, we think it's safe and so we're going and uh, taking them because it's a trip of a lifetime. And I can tell you about all the different places, and we'll probably mention some stuff as it gets closer. Uh, but I just want to give you a heads up. Um, the, all the information is on our website, sfchurch.com. You can find dates and logistics and cost and registering and all those types of things. You can bring your kids. If you've got questions, come see me up here afterwards. But the thing that I love about it, one, we spend 10 days together, so we get to have a bunch of meals and get to know each other. But two is going to the actual spots, like to stand on the Mount of Olives. And it's that, that picture that people show of Jerusalem all the time. And be like, hey, this is, you know, Acts 1.8, when Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, the uttermost coast of the world, this is where he was standing when he said it. And this is the next place that when he comes back, he said his feet are going to touch the ground. Pretty awesome to be there. And what happens for the people that go is when they come back, then they say it changes the way they read the Bible. And so... We don't need to go again. We've been there. <laughs> but we want you to have that experience. And so I want to invite you to that. If you've got questions, come see me after the service. If you want to trust Jesus, so you get first in line. But if you want to talk about going to the Holy Land, uh, I'd love to talk with you as well. And today what we're going to do, Matthew chapter 9, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, we've been in John up until this point. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. Let me pray and we'll jump into today's message. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Um, thank you that you've spoken to us. How amazing. Uh, that you speak through your son, Jesus, that you've written things down in your word, and God, we need a word from you today. Different people, different things happening. Power going out this week, things happening at work, relationships, need some encouragement, whatever, sin that needs to be confronted, you know. I'm gonna say some words from Matthew 9. Will you have them be your words, and will you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, have conversations with people to make them more like your son Jesus, to woo them to your son Jesus. I pray that somebody watching online, whether that be at a Starbucks or in their house, would come to Christ today. Somebody that, that didn't know if this was their church, they would feel loved and welcomed by you. And Father, I pray that you'd reveal your son Jesus and draw people to him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I love so much about those clips of the calling of Matthew. Uh, there's certain things in it that are very unique and different from what many of us have experienced with American Christianity. I love that Peter's offended. What are you calling this guy? Like we don't know in the Bible whether Matthew actually cheated Peter, but it's very likely. I love that the Pharisees are upset about who's at the, like, why do you care who Jesus is eating with? He invited you in. You didn't come eat. My favorite line is when Jesus says, get used to different. And the reality is that following Jesus is different. And what many of us have been sold, as far as Christianity is concerned, is it's really kind of an enhancement to the American dream. That's not what the Bible says. And so when we look at who Jesus is, someone who says they hate you, well, they hated me first. Someone says if anyone's going to follow me, you got to take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. To follow actually is just it's two words. He says you'll follow me. Those two words changes Matthew's life. In that passage of scripture, it just means walk the road that I walk. So that's different than what many of us have experienced in our Christianity. I mentioned last week that several of you uh, have shared with me your viewing choices and how you think they might overlap with mine, and I appreciate that a ton, and that's led to some interesting uh, viewing options for me. And one of them was a friend of mine. He's a climber, uh, owns Triangle Rock Club here in town, and he said, I think you'd love this mountaineering movie called Touching the Void. And I watched Touching the Void, and those of you who like to watch that, I'll give you a second to jot that in your notes, but it's a true story about two climbers. One guy's 25 years old, his name was Joe Simpson, and the other guy was 21 years old, his name is Simon Yates. They were the first two guys to climb this mountain in, in Peru. The first two to ever, and as the making of the documentary, they were the only two to climb this mountain about 21,000 feet in Peru. And so the documentary, the first five minutes, is about that. The rest of it is about how things went different, than they planned. And I watched uh, an interview that one of the guys did afterwards and it wasn't part of the documentary but he was talking about how weird it is to climb down a mountain. Most people have uh, a plan for how they're gonna get to the top. But coming back down, it's an awkward thing to. and basically this mountain was part glacier and so they're ice climbing part of it. They're rock climbing on some. They're ice climbing on others. They're doing the purest type of climbing. So nobody's gone up there and put ropes ahead of time. There's no, you know, pre-planned. They're figuring out as they're going. And they've got these big mountain axes and they stick it into the ice. and They stick their feet into it. And they're like 20,000 feet above the ground on a couple inches of steel. <laughs> One of the elders said to me, you'd do that if you weren't a pastor, wouldn't you? And I'd be like, that's crazy. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and so these guys are climbing this. And he says on the way down... He plopped it in, and he heard a a funny sound, and listening to it is part of the skill of this, and he said, I wanted to make sure I had a good grip. Imagine that, you're 20,000 feet above. He said, so I pulled it back out, but when I pulled it back out, the ice disintegrated where I did have a grip, and I fell. He didn't know exact height, but a couple hundred feet was his estimate. And he said, when I fell, landed on my right leg, and the lower part of my leg smashed through the top part of my leg. Broke my knee, tore my ACL, tore my MCL, shattered my ankle, uh, fractured my heel, Um, broke his femur, those bones jammed uh, jammed into that. And he said, the way that we were climbing, uh, we were tied to each other. So the guy ahead of me knew that I had fallen, but he hadn't climbed down to me yet. And he said, I knew when Simon got down to me, this is Joe, Joe Simpson. So I knew when Simon got down to me, I was now a liability. How are we gonna get down? We're still 20,000 feet up here. There's a storm coming. And he thought, he's gonna leave me. He's gonna let me die up here. And maybe he'll say nice words like, I'll go get help. It took him two days on donkey to get to the mountain, a day in a car to get to the donkeys, and now they're in a place where no one's ever been before. (laughs) Yeah, help's not coming. And he said, so Simon gets to me and he looks me in the eye and he said, are you okay? He goes, it actually occurred to me to say yes. (laughs) He said, but I didn't. I said, no, I told him I had broken my leg. And I thought he was going to just walk off. And he walked off, but he didn't leave me. He started digging a hole in the side of the mountain. And he came up with this maneuver where he was going to plant himself like an anchor in a part of the mountain. And then I had a 150-foot rope, and he had a 150-foot rope. We were going to tie it together. And for the next 20,000 feet, he was going to lower me down 300 feet at a time. When I'd get to my spot, I would stand up on my left leg, my only good leg. it would put slack in the rope. And then he would know it was time to climb down to me, and he'd redo it. He did that three times in one hour. Then the storm came. And he was lowering Joe for the next time. He said, I was thinking to myself, you know, about 10 more times and we'll be there. And he was kind of calculating their, their distance at this point. And they were moving. They were going at a pretty good pace. And he he went really fast on this one. But as he was yelling to slow it down, Simon couldn't hear him because of the storm. And Simon thought he was just going fast because it was an especially steep slope. But he actually went over a spot where there was no mountain beneath him. And he was hanging vertically above nothing. A few thousand feet in the air. And he said, I swung and I'm trying to hook onto the mountain. I couldn't do that. Tried to climb up the rope. Couldn't do that. The other guy at the top, Simon, he doesn't know what's happening. But he knows he can't get any slack. And for some reason, he's not standing up to give him the slack. For 90 minutes, they're in this predicament. And then it starts to pull Simon down the mountain. And it becomes evident that either you cut your friend free to certain death. Or you're both going to die. So what would you do? That's what the mountain climbing community debates to this day. Would you Would you cut him free? What happened is that Simon remembered they only had one knife and it was in the top of his rucksack and he pulled it out and he said it actually didn't take him very long to decide. He cut his friend free into a free fall of certain death. Except he didn't die. He fell several hundred feet and I tell my kids, real life stories are so much better than the fake ones. Like sci-fi is cool, but... You can go, yeah, but it would never happen. This actually happened. This is a true story. And Joe Simpson tells the story of how he fell into a crevice, which is basically a cave that's facing up. And he fell into this, uh, about 150 feet down into this cave, which is a black hole. And he's just in total darkness. And he's thinking, well, either my friend fell off and he's dead, or he's going to come and get me. And so he's yelling, but there's a storm. No one can hear him. He goes, the next morning, I realized he ain't coming to get me. So he said, I started pulling on the rope, thinking his dead body must be on the other side, and then he got the rope and realized, he cut it! And now he's got no food, no water, he's trapped in this ice cave, he can see the top, but he's got a broken leg so he can't climb out. His only option is there's a black hole and he can go further into it, and he does. And he said, his thought was not survival, he just said, I knew if I was gonna die, I wanted to die in the sunlight. He gets out of that and then the rest of the documentary is about his crawling one and a half miles across the rest of the glacier, his broken leg, and when he gets to that, he's got six and a half miles further to go to get to their base camp, and you'd think he'd crawl that, but he can't because the terrain's too rough, and so he's falling down, hallucinations, physical struggles, mental struggles, and he gets at three and a half days of crawling, he gets back to where the base camp was, he's passing out, going unconscious, he's dehydrating. And he accidentally crossed through human feces, the camp latrine, and he said, "But it acted like smelling salts and woke him up." And he said, "Am I crawling the whole time? I was trying to get to a spot where someone would find my body, and it never occurred to me that they might still be there. It's been four days now." And he said, "But I didn't think to myself, Simon's going to need time to recover physically, and he's got to think about how does he tell all of our friends I killed our friend out there." And he said, "So I started yelling for Simon." I said, they heard me, but they thought it was a dog barking because Joe's been dead for four days. And he said, and he passed out, and he didn't know what happened next, but then they were there, and they brought him to the tent, and then they go on a two-day trip on donkey, and then one day in the car, and it takes 11 days from the time he broke his leg before he goes to the hospital. But he's alive! It's pretty amazing. That's different. And so is following Jesus. And that's why Jesus says... Are you going to go on this adventure of following me? Get used to different. And so today as we jump into Matthew chapter 9, we were going to do this. There's only a few verses. And so when I was planning out this series, I was thinking we'd only spend a few, uh, just one day here, a few moments in the, this passage, just one Sunday. But we're going to do two Sundays here because there's so much content in just a few verses. And the content is because we're going to look at it from the perspective of Jesus. The reason why following Jesus is different because he's a different kind of savior. That's today's message. Next week, we're going to look at, and that produces, if you follow the real Jesus of the Bible, it produces a different kind of disciple and talk about how it changes our lives. Today, we're just going to lift Jesus up. Is that okay? And he promises to draw people to himself. And so we're going to talk about how great he is. Matthew chapter 9, uh, what's happening here, we've been in the gospel of John. Matthew's a little different than John. Uh, Matthew, it's the longest of the gospels. He tells the most of Jesus' teaching. And in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he's recorded the most famous sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, Jesus talks about, if you're not following him, how your life's upside down. And he's got to turn your life right side up, the Beatitudes, in order for you to experience what you want satisfaction. Happy are joy. You want joy? You want pleasure? Satisfaction? It comes from doing these things, which is part of following Jesus, but it's different. And he talks about hot topics. Jesus isn't afraid to offend people. He talks about divorce. He talks about lust. He talks about all these things that people are thinking they've got figured out and they don't. And what Matthew does that's so incredible is he shows how Jesus not only said these things, taught these things, but then he goes and he looks at Jesus' life and how the way he lived his life applied what he said. Now here's the reality, Christians. If you just know stuff about the Bible and it makes no difference in your life, that's worse than just not knowing the Bible. You gotta apply it. And so what happens in Matthew chapter eight is application of the Sermon on the Mount. And so people are saying, he's teaching with authority unlike we've ever seen before. And we see where that authority comes from. He talks about how to treat your enemies. And that's why in Matthew chapter 8, when an enemy, a Gentile soldier, comes to him, Jesus says this statement. I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. That'd be very offensive to the Jewish people. He touches a leper, unclean person. Shows what it is to follow him. People are volunteering to follow Jesus, and Jesus says no. Can you imagine? I don't know if you've ever led at a church before, but if you're lead, you know, you're leading the kids' ministry, you're leading the small group, somebody's like, I want to lead. And you're like, all right, I met a couple uh, from Atlanta this week and they weren't they were going to our church. They were watching online and they said they had attended this one church right after the pandemic, and they said, We want to volunteer. And they said, next thing we knew, we were leaders on a youth retreat. And they're like, Are you I said to them, Are you guys Christians? And they were like, they didn't know. And <laughs> I was like, that's how we work in churches. Like somebody volunteers, it's like, next thing you know, you're like, you're in charge. <laughs> and Jesus says to people, you're not ready to follow me. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. You're going to follow me to fulfill your, the American dream. A house and two and a half kids. Jesus didn't have anywhere to lay his head. Prosperity gospel, they're making up a, ba- a fake version of Jesus, just so you know. It's not real. So you think you're following Jesus so you can get the American dream. Wrong Jesus. He says, let the dead bury the dead. Well, that seems pretty cold-hearted, Jesus. No, I'm saying, until you're ready for, to come with me, you're not ready to come with me. And so what happens next is, right before our passage, it's important you get this. There's a paralyzed guy. Mark tells us that his friends dig through the rooftop to lower their friend in. And that Jesus saw their faith. Saw their friend's faith. You got friends that do whatever it takes to get you to Jesus? He did. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. And the religious guys are upset because only God can forgive sins. Ding, ding, ding. And that's who Jesus is. And so he says, to show you I've got authority to forgive sins grab your mat and go to your house. And the guy gets up and walks away. Everybody's in shock. That's what the verse right before our passage says. It says, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. That's one translation. Some translations say they were amazed. Some say they were afraid. Yeah, it's all that, they're surprised because this is different. Jesus can call anybody he wants to at this moment. He's at the peak of popularity. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. He's the God who sees. We saw that. There's a crowd following him. Everybody's excited. But look at what Matthew's doing. He's sitting at the tax collector's booth. He seems disinterested. If there's anybody who's not interested in Jesus at this moment, it's this guy. And he says, Follow me. He told him. And Matthew, this is the miracle, got up and followed him. Two words. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, okay, so I guess we're in another scene here, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, so they're talking to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, I love that Jesus answers. They didn't ask Jesus. It's like Jesus is saying, if you're gonna talk about me, talk to me. That'd be a great principle for us all to put into practice, wouldn't it? Jesus says, on hearing this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So he's calling himself a doctor. Remember what's just happened? Your sins are forgiven. Yeah, you can't do that. So you know I can do that. This paralyzed guy, it's been his lifelong problem. That's why everybody brought him here. Go. Yeah, he can do that. And then he says to them, but go and learn. That's a statement that would be offensive to them. This is what these teachers would have said to their students when they didn't know stuff they should know. But go and learn. You need to study this on your own. What this means, and he quotes here, the Old Testament I desire mercy not sacrifice and he says for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners and what we see here is a different kind of savior than they expected what they had expected because of their cultural climate the taxation that was taking place and here he's calling the tax collector and all the things that are happening with the oppression of Rome is that they'd have a new political leader that would give them better financial prosperity and greater freedom that's the messiah they were looking for and Jesus says I'm not that guy That's probably disappointing to some of you if you apply that. Because that's the kind of savior that gets talked about on most news stations. And that is not the Jesus of the Bible. He's different. And so, the thing with talking about different, is I can give you a definition. It's opposed to things that are the same. And like all the, Google it, Oxford Dictionary, dictionary dictionary.com, like all stuff. There's all kinds of definitions and they struggle to not use the word different when they're defining it, if you read it. But telling you a definition doesn't help you. But you know different when you see it. How many of you hear like, house shows? You want you to do it yourself or HGTV and so many different shows. I see people that your spouse is raising the hand, the other one's not. We can talk about that. We do premarital counseling and postmarital counseling uh, in that process. Um, but a lot of Americans, we like house shows. I think it's kind of funny because I sold houses to pay my way through seminary. Worked for a national builder. We sold every level of house. Starter home, super expensive house, and they're all the same, just so you know. The sizes change, but it's, there's one room that everybody lives in. There's a kitchen. You can buy as many bathrooms as you'd like. And how many bedrooms is that? And then there's this room up in the front that has expensive furniture. We call it a dining room, but nobody goes in there. (laughs) And there's a bonus room. It's where you hide your junk, like if you want to know what all these rooms are. But it's all the same stuff. We rearrange them, paint them different colors, different bells and whistles, but it's the same thing until it's not. (laughs) And when you see one that's not, you know it. You ever hear the saying, um, people in glass houses don't throw rocks? Do you know there's people that actually make glass houses? I saw this transparent house online. Think about that. Their neighbors don't have the same house, by the way. They must have been part of the renovation. Have you ever seen those shows? Like, that house didn't like the rest of the neighborhood. (laughs) I don't know if they just like sunlight, or if they've decided they're listening to us anyways, they've given up on privacy, I don't know. Or there's if you you were a teenage boy and you were going to design a house, it would be like this if you had the money. (sighs) Yeah. It's the skateboard house. Every room is suited for skateboarding in and on the surfaces. Dick Clark had a house one time in Malibu on over 20 acres called the Flintstone House. There's some pictures of that. He really liked beige, and it's rock, (laughs) based on the cartoon, the Flintstones. That's different, and when you see it, you don't need someone to tell you that's different. Like You just know when you see different, you know different. And Jesus is just done preaching a sermon where he said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You think these things are true, but I'm telling you, you're not even getting in the heart of what's going on here. And then he goes and he lives it out. And people are going, who is this? And he's just said to a guy, your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins? Now he's going to show them. He's super popular, peak of popularity. And what he's showing them is this. (laughs) If you're going to follow me, it means following a different kind of savior our main point today is simply this that following jesus requires answering the call of a different savior and by different savior what, what do you mean different savior well what i'm thinking of there is not what we talked about earlier in the series that there's a lot of different types of jesus that people follow and when you ask them in america or do you follow jesus you got to go which one which one which jesus are you following the bible one or some other version that you've heard about i'm talking about there's a lot of saviors that call to us And we all have these longings in our heart. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that eternity is in our heart. We want satisfaction. We've got these things that we long for. That's why I think Jesus started his sermon, Sermon on the Mount. You want happiness? Here's how you get happiness. Because we all want that. And so what calls to us? Power calls to us? We want power. That's a false savior. And we think that if we get this savior, if we're in control, no one can hurt us and you don't realize how incredibly vulnerable you are, even if you own the company and run the place and everybody in the city thinks, yeah, tell that to cancer. Sex calls to all of us, sex saturated world that we live in, there's no need to convince you with statistics of pornography and things like that, that you can just pop on your phone for two seconds and there's some sexual allurement coming to you and people think it's just raw lust, and I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but what do people really want? They wanna be known, they wanna be desired, they want someone to, to want them. They want intimacy. J.K. Chesterton, a pastor of a different generation, said, every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God on the other side of the door. And what he's saying is there's a, what you're really pursuing, God put that desire in you. But you're following a false savior. And we could list a lot of them. Escape. And people escape through all kinds of stuff. Alcohol, their workaholism. You know, working out a bunch of, a bunch, and gluttony. Like you try to escape and all these different things. But well, we just want the pressure relief. We want to get out. We can't handle all the responsibility. There's too much weight. And so these things call to us. Just come to this. And the problem with all these saviors. And we can go through a, a hundred different ones. These false saviors are calling to us. And not only do they not deliver, what they're calling you to is your idolatry. And Jesus tells you to repent. The message he starts with, Matthew 4, same message John the Baptist preached. Repent. Jesus goes to a bunch of parties and celebrates. John the Baptist, he was raw and rough, and he was kind of down. And the same people rejected both of them. It wasn't the way the style of the message was delivered, it was they didn't want to turn from their way of life to the one Jesus was calling them to. Jesus calls you, all the false saviors say, I'll deliver the thing you're wanting, I can deliver it, and then they don't. And Jesus says, you're wanting the wrong thing. Turn from that and come to me. And then the, the incredible divine irony is what you're really wanting is exactly what I deliver, but you've got to deny yourself. And what we do is we put ourselves on the throne. Jesus is such a unique savior. He's unprecedented to them, not just because he's not political, but because of what he does here. Look at the passage. Go back to verse nine. It says, as he went on, there, on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. And we've already talked about how he's the God who sees. Luke uses a unique word here. Luke uses the word like an artist who would look at a masterpiece and he's pondering and wonder. So he's walking along. Everybody's flocking to him. He can call an athlete. He can call a scholar. He could call, you know, a king. But he looks and he sees Matthew and it's like he starts to study him. And then just two words. Two words, follow me. Temptation with teaching this passage is to say to you, yeah, but it's in Capernaum, and we actually do know where this tax collector booth is, so if you go to Israel, we can go back, this is where Matthew would have been. Like, it's a real place. And Jesus did a lot of his miracles in Capernaum, and so then we try to deduce. The Bible doesn't say this, but we try to say, well, then Matthew must have seen him do these things and say these things, and so it makes sense that when Jesus, only two words. Because you've got to ask yourself the question, if somebody came to you and said, follow me, would you go? I hope you'd say no. Like if I showed, you know, J.D. Henson, right here's a lawyer, great lawyer in our church. If I walked into his law office, we've got years of history. If I walked in, I follow me. It makes sense for him to go, where? Who, who are you? Why are you doing this? Why would I do that? And Matthew doesn't say any of that. He le- I heard some of you when we were watching the video, we like, yeah. Like when he was like, you're going to throw away everything. Luke, Matthew doesn't say this. Matthew is writing his own account here. He doesn't talk about leaving everything. He's incredibly wealthy. He's probably being humble. Luke tells us he did. Luke shows us. See, different authors show different details for different reasons. And so he leaves everything? Why? And so we want to say because he already knew. And he saw these miracles. But that's not what Matthew's telling us this story this way for a reason. It was those two words. Why? Because of who said them. If I came to your office and said, do you follow me? You should be, uh, that's weird. No. But when Jesus speaks, the Bible says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Like the people in rebellion, it's Hebrews 3. Respond. That's what, because of who he is. Because God's word has power and authority. And that's what he's showing us. That's what he's been teaching us. And so he's taught in the Sermon on the Mount with power and authority. And then what happens? What happens is the first person that comes to him after the Sermon on the Mount where he's offended the religious people like crazy because he said things like, hey, you think these guys are righteous? They're not getting into heaven. And neither are you unless your righteousness surpasses theirs. Uh, Everybody there is mad. Let me give you just a general principle. Just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. So then what happens is... Matthew chapter 8, there's a leper. A leper is an unclean person. Don't even stand downwind from them or you won't be allowed to come to the temple. He comes to Jesus. He says, if you will, make me clean. And Jesus doesn't say, here's some lotion. This is the best stuff. Shaq uses it. Rub it on. Take some antibiotics. Well, look at what happens. Matthew 8, 3. Jesus reached out his hand, touched the man. He says, I'm willing. Imagine he put his hand on his shoulder. And then how does he heal him? Be clean. Two words, he's clean. Next, there's an enemy. Who's Matthew? He's an enemy, he's hated. You see, most of us, we just don't like tax collectors because we don't want to pay a bunch of, we pay, you know, most of us pay 30 to 40% of our income in taxes. We don't even realize it, but all the taxes that we pay because of sales tax and property tax and all the different, and you've got your income tax and all that, and you just think it's just your income tax. Like, no, you're paying, like, we work for four or five months of the year just to pay the government. So, like, the other day, I had a, a tax collector actually come to my door. I don't know if you've had this or not. they were reassessing properties and I came, I don't know why they picked my house out of the neighborhood, but they came to the front door. I'm on the phone, working from home He's got a Wake County sign on, on his car. I come on, I go, hold on one second, to my buddy. And I said, yeah, what can I do for you? And he was like, have you done any improvements in your house, like your kitchen or anything? And I looked at him and I goes, well, I know what you're doing. <laughs> and I said, if I say yes, you're going to charge me more taxes. But if I've done something, I say, no, that's lying, and I'm a Christian, so now you've put me in a quandary. <laughs> Because if I overestimate, you're going to charge me too many taxes. And if I lie to you, then I know that I lied to you. That's not right. And I said, so here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to answer that question. And you go be nice. And I smiled and I closed the door. And he started walking around and I had another conversation with him, but I got back on the phone with my friend. I goes, Matthew, the tax collector's here. (laughs) And then I was like, and you're preaching that. Man, come on. The Lord does that. But here's why people didn't like tax collectors. They were traitors. It wasn't just that everybody doesn't like tax collectors, but these were the most despised people of the day. These people were not allowed to come to the temple. They were considered unclean. Their testimonies were not received in court. They weren't even allowed to give a testimony even if they're an eyewitness in court because you're lesser than human. They've been told by the religious leaders, you're beyond redemption, you have no hope. The way that Rome led is they killed people. It's funny that they call it Pax Romana but they would dominate and take over territory. They were brutal, bloodthirsty people. But the way they ruled was genius. They would take somebody who was local sell them a franchise, like how you'd own a McDonald's or own, you know, selling whatever it is that you sell around here, and you've got this certain area, that's your space, and you collect all the taxes in that space, and we're gonna give you a Roman soldier to back you up, and you've got protection of the judges. No one can complain and appeal their taxes because the judges are getting money from that too. And here's how you make money, is you take the required amount that Rome's gonna require you to give, and then you've got all of our authority to take as much as you want after that. And so the way you become wealthy is by taking money from other people. So nobody likes them because they're crooks, they're traitors, they're funding a terroristic government. And so I was thinking this week, like how do I get people to realize how offensive this was to call Matthew? And I thought, who's the most offensive person in our culture? And right now there's this thing, I don't know if you've seen it on social media, but a documentary on Jeffrey Dahmer. No. I tell you, I watch a lot of stuff. I'm not watching that, just so you know. I don't recommend you watch that. If you watch it, I'm not trying to like condemn you. It's probably demonic, because I know enough about the guy. What's interesting to me is this. Why are we fascinated with this man? He died 28 years ago. And he was twisted. He was a murderer. This is, these are the things he was found guilty in court for. Murder, serial killer, killed 17 young men over a 12-year period, sexual offender, sexual assault, and cannibalism. It's a different kind of, different kind of wickedness in that i not watching that because I think it's, I don't want to bring that into our home. But did you know that he was so hated that when he was murdered in prison, which he was murdered in prison, wasn't even claimed to be a suicide, he was murdered in prison, that the prosecuting attorney had to come out and say to people, don't celebrate this. We don't want this guy to be a folklore hero, the guy who killed him, because it's still murder and people still celebrate it. That's how hated he was. Did you know that he made a profession of faith in jail? claimed to be a born-again Christian, was baptized. If you just thought to yourself, no, and I saw some of your heads, then you know how people felt about Matthew. That's why the Chosen series would have Peter go, not him. Now listen, I don't know if Jeffrey Dahmer was a believer or not. I don't know. But Matthew was, and people weren't happy about it. What Jesus was doing is showing who he is. What about Matthew. Jesus is an unprecedented savior, and it's the power of his word that made Matthew turn. And so then you see the centurion, centurion says, You don't even have to come to my house because there's authority in your word. And then Jesus says, I haven't even seen faith like that in all of Israel. Go and it's done for you. And in that moment, the guy was healed. The power of his word. And then, and then we come to the storm. Anybody see the news this week? Anybody see any, did it rain? I didn't catch that. There was one point where I was watching the news with my kids, one of my daughters was watching. There's this guy, he was trying to get to a sign and he just got the wind was so strong. He couldn't get to the sign and he's fighting to the sign. And maybe I just lack compassion. But I said to my daughter, I said, why is he trying to get to the sign? And she said, because he wants to be able to stand still. I goes, why doesn't he go stand next to the camera guy? There's a guy standing here videoing him. He's not blowing around at all. There's gotta be a building or something there. <laughs> but the next thing that happens in that passage is there's this a terrible storm that's so bad that professional fishermen are terrified they're going to die. Now we talk about going to the Holy Land, you get to be, like there's some places where people go, the Catholics think it was here and the Protestants think it was here. It's like on the Sea of Galilee, the storm was there. And we get on a boat and we go on to the Sea of Galilee and you see the mountains all around and you can tell how a storm could come quick. Hopefully it doesn't while we're there, can't guarantee your safety. <laughs> but they think they're gonna die. And Jesus rebukes the wind and waves, the power of his word. Let me tell you something, God speaks to you, you listen. You know who he speaks to? Uniquely qualified people. (laughs) Matthew, yeah. But then you've got these other guys who've been living their whole lives building up righteousness and, and not them. There's one qualification for following Jesus. You think about that. Think about jobs, some of you try to get jobs. Have you ever you know, done something just to get it on your resume? <laughs> I won't ask you if you have enhanced skills that you have for your resume. You know, if you read about this, you'll see people that will say, like managers will say, you know, like, I was interviewing this guy, and he said he was a hydration specialist, and I found out he was a water boy on his high school football team. <laughs> you know, and some of you are like, I'm a petroleum transfer specialist. Oh, you know how to pump gas in your own car. Got you. <laughs> It's like people have these special skills, so they want everybody to know. I, I did read a story one time about a Marine that was applying after he got out of the Marines, and, and was coming into the, the marketplace, applied for a job at this office, and the office manager said she was reading the resume, and it said two tours in Iraq, 23 confirmed kills. Whoa, that is a unique skill. See that guy? No, I'm just kidding. Like, how does that apply here in the office? And so, some of you've got you know nunchuck skills and unique skills you've acquired over a lifetime, like all kinds of things. What does it take to follow Jesus? One. Sinner. That's what it is. He, only call, he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, I call sinners. Well, isn't that all of us? Because the Bible says there is none righteous, not one, that we all sin and we all fall short of God's glory that we're all sinners. You say, well, that's not fair. I wasn't born a sinner. But you sinned, like everybody has sinned. So even if you disagree with that thought, You've done wrong. Have you ever lied? Raise your hand if you think lying's wrong. Raise your hand if you've ever lied. Yep, it's all of us. Got it. So then everyone is qualified. No, everyone's not qualified. Everyone doesn't come and follow him, even when it's him that's speaking. So you've got to ask yourself the question why? Pastor Danny mentioned that we were praying outside of that abortion clinic yesterday. Everybody had a different experience. And so I'm not saying this was everyone's experience, but my experience. It was overwhelming to me after you know preaching on it the week before and spending all week talking to people about that. Uh, was then coming to this place, realizing you know we've got there was about two hundred people that were with us that were praying and singing songs and doing that, but they were volunteers for the abortion clinic. And when I got there and I saw that they were in these smocks, they had rainbow smocks, and they would escort ladies into the building that were going there to kill their babies that day, and and I was thinking they're not getting paid. To do this, and they started videoing us. You know, like, they weren't just videoing us because our prayers were so awesome. It was like, you know, like "Who are these crazy people? All you're praying?" I thought they think they're doing the right thing. They're in darkness. They're deceived. Some of them are, are hypocritical, and Then I remembered before I came to Christ, I did the same thing. I didn't even know. I've, I've gone to a couple of my friends, I was connected with one of them in high school uh, the other day, and he had become a Christian before I did, and, and I was trying to, I thought he was missing out on sin, and I kept trying to woo him, and I was, I was a tool of Satan. I didn't even know it. So my heart just went out to these, these people that were serving as volunteers to kill babies. Their own time, like there's weren't getting, there's no, it was just, wow, why? Biblically, we see three reasons. Uh, one is deception, one is darkness, Another is duplicity. That's the worst one. Deception, uh, the Bible says, and Jesus is real clear in the Sermon on the Mount, is um, is that we think certain things are true that aren't true. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And he's getting to people's hearts when he says that. And so when he confronts things like lust, it's not that some people thought they were good because they hadn't slept with anybody before they got married. And then after they were married, they hadn't cheated on their spouses. And Jesus is going, but if you've lusted after somebody who's not your spouse, then you're already guilty of adultery. And it's not like, in, some pastors teach like, Jesus is up in the ante. So you mean that lust was good until Jesus said that. And you're like, man, now today it's not. Mm-hmm. No, it was always bad. And you're always guilty. And he's saying, it's your heart that I need to see. Your heart, if you hated anybody, that's murder. Lust, it's adultery. He's confronting, you're deceived. If you think you're righteous, you're not. Habakkuk says it like this about God, when things are going bad in his society and he can't understand why wicked people are ruling, the prophet cries out to God, appealing to his character. This is poetic language, but he says, your eyes are too pure to look on, and he's talking about tolerate evil. But God's allowing it to go, and then here's Jesus with these tax collectors and sinners. Like, how are you tolerating these things? One of the problems we have is that we think that accepting somebody is affirmation of that person. And we've lost the ability to disagree. When I disagree with you and I tell you, that, no, I really think that you're wrong. Jesus had a way of bringing grace and truth together, and so what we oftentimes think and we're deceived is, well, I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, I might not be Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, but I'm like in the middle. <laughs> God doesn't grade on the curve. <laughs> he is the standard. So in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, "Your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees." Whose righteousness do we need to measure up to then? Well, Matthew 5:48, "Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect." But we're all sinners. That's why before that, the famous verse in 1 John 1, 1.9 about confession and cleansing, he says this, if we claim to be without sin, what are we doing? Deceiving ourselves. That's what happens for some people. Deception. Other people, it's Darkness. And we talked about it in John 3:16 last week, and got to Jesus came to rescue us, that we wouldn't perish, that we would have eternal life, rescuing us from perishing by the death of His Son, that He would go on the cross, absorb the wrath of God, and that's what we're turning to. When we turn from our sin, we're turning to His forgiveness, and we're turning to receive His righteousness. The next verse we didn't get to. Jesus says, "I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world." And then He says, "The world is already condemned." They don't, they don't need somebody to tell them they're condemned. They're condemned because they're living in darkness. Remember the saddest verse in John, week one of this series, his own didn't receive him. They chose, the light came into the world. They chose darkness. Why? John 3 tells us why. John chapter 3 and verse 19, this is the verdict. Legal talk. Lights come into the world. That's Jesus. But people, that's all of us, love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. The reason why everyone doesn't respond to an all-loving, all-powerful Savior is because they love something more. Their sin. So it takes a miracle, the same as God spoke everything into existence. He created life. He has to recreate life in you. So... The same power that created the world that stood at the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out and rose the dead. You know that guy in that that documentary said, I was dead for four days. He wasn't really dead for four days. His friends just thought he was dead for four days. Lazarus was really dead for four days. And spiritually, so were you. And so was Matthew. And the miracle is, he comes. Follow me. Why? Unprecedented savior. Uniquely qualified people. Us? But some don't. Darkness, deception, and duplicity. And that's the Pharisees. That's the worst. That's people who know that there's sin in their heart, but you've spent your whole life building up a reputation. You're your own PR agent. And you've presented this life to everyone else that now you feel like you have to live up to, but you know what's true inside, but it's so hard to humble yourself and acknowledge all of this isn't true. To turn to Jesus? Why would anyone do that? The next verse is, and this will lead us into next week. I think they tell us why. It's this dinner party that Matthew tells us about at his own house. <laughs> He's so modest in the way he tells it. We'll talk more about what Luke says. And we're going to talk about how Jesus really loves parties next week. And so, come, we're going to celebrate. He <laughs> says, well, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came. And so there's prostitutes and murderers and robbers. And everybody's not allowed to go to the temple. That's who would hang out here they ate with him and his disciples when the pharisees saw this how did they see why do you care why aren't you eating your own meal jeez they asked his disciples why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners on hearing this jesus says it's not the healthy you need a doctor so he calls himself the great physician but remember our context he's just physically healed a guy because he's showing you can spiritually heal a guy who didn't come for spiritual healing (laughs) it's not because we're turning to him and he goes oh yeah i got that no you wouldn't even turn to him if it wasn't for him but the sick. But go and learn. In other words, you should know this. And he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. What I think we have here is a real life example of a made up story Jesus tells later. In Luke 15. We oftentimes call it the prodigal son. And what's happened in Luke 15, if you understand the context, you'll see what I'm talking about, is that Luke chapter 15, verses one and two, the reason why Jesus is even telling this story is because the religious people are upset with him for hanging out with tax collectors. They're grumbling and complaining. Read Luke. I think if we got it, you can go and pop it on the screen. I won't read it, but Luke chapter 15, verses one and two, they're all upset. He's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. So prostitutes, murderers, tax collectors. They're coming around Jesus. They want to hear, who's this guy that called Matthew? Like somebody that would accept me? I want to know more about that guy. Religious people are upset. Jesus tells three stories. The first one is about a shepherd who loses one of his sheep. And he says he goes after the sheep and he brings it back and the lost is found. And then the story ends. And the same is true when one sinner repents and all of heaven rejoices. Then he tells another story. And it's about a woman who loses a ring and then she finds the ring and then she celebrates. And he says the ending of the story is the same. Exactly the same, Luke 15, seven, Luke 15, 10, all of heaven rejoices over one sinner that repents. Then he tells a story of a lost son. Everybody thinks it's about the first guy. The first guy would be like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, like give me the inheritance, I'm disrespecting and rebelling against you father, I'm gonna go spend my money on prostitutes, I'm gonna go squander my life and when I feel totally empty, then I repent. And in humility I come back and the father comes before you can even say all the things you've done. Loves you, welcomes you back, There's a sacrifice, fattened pig. Now there's a celebration. We're seeing the story lived out. There's no ending, but there's this angry older brother. Remember who's listening? Grumbling, complaining, Pharisees and religious people. The older brother, you ever hear a story and you think, is he talking about me? (laughs) Like Nathan tells David a story about a rich guy who's really greedy and then takes a poor guy's stuff and he goes, you're the man. That's what's happening here. And Jesus goes, and there's this older brother, and he's mad because he's lived his whole life doing the right things and exactly what his dad wanted him to do, and there's not throwing any party for him. And the dad says, All my stuff is yours. In other words, we can have a party, and the story doesn't end. We don't know what happens. It's an invitation to the religious people. We can have a party, but you got to turn. It's his love. Is unexplainable love. And what he's doing in our passage, I think, and I want to be careful not to fashion a Jesus in my own image. I think he's being sarcastic. Only sinners need a savior. You don't need me. You're not sick. Healthy people don't go to the doctor. So I'm gonna hang out with these sick people. Do you wanna come? And the invitation's open to them. It's really interesting to me that these people that are experts in the Bible that are mad about him hanging out with sinners, that of all the books in the Old Testament he could quote from, he quotes Hosea. (laughs) Do you know Hosea? If you don't know Hosea, you gotta read Hosea this week, all right? Hosea, God says to his man, Hosea, I want you to go marry a whore. Have children of whore, and they're gonna live in their whoredom, okay? I preached Hosea one time at our church, and there were a couple people that would come up to me and say, here's how many times you said whore or prostitute. I'm like, it's in the Bible, it's right there! And so, Hosea, Verse chapter one tells who's there. Verse two, here's what's going on. Whore, whore, whore. Mm -hmm. And I want you to marry him. Okay. And then in chapter three, he tells Hosea, who's already married this woman, who's now living with another guy, you go buy her back. And the cost is so expensive that Hosea, he can't pay cash. It's a sacrifice to redeem or buy back his own wife. His wife, his wife who's loved by another and loving another while she's loving another. So I'm buying you back from your current lover. I'm gonna pay him the cost of a slave. Read it, Hosea 3. Here's all I want from you. Call me husband, not Baal. Don't treat me like another one of the false gods out there. Mm. Because he's different. And he loves you. I started the sermon with the story of Joe Simpson. And uh, Joe tells the story. He talks about whether... Uh, he thought it was okay for Simon to cut the rope. And he says, yes. So I told Simon as soon as I got in the tent, I would have done the same thing. He says, I, I get in interviews in mountaineering groups and they ask me, do you think it was okay that he cut the rope? And he says, he goes, the real question is not, was it okay for him to cut the rope? We only had one knife and it was in his rucksack. The real question is if that knife had been in my rucksack, would I have cut the rope so he could live? And he said, and I don't think so. Because he doesn't know that kind of love. That's the kind of love Jesus has for you. That's why two words and you go. You follow him? It's different. Father, we come before you today. There is power in your word. I pray that you've spoken your word into every heart who can hear my voice right now. Online, in this room, years from now that might pull this up on the internet. God, will you speak? Will you speak supernaturally by the power of your Holy Spirit and call people, people that have been following a form of religion to come and turn to you as Savior and hunger for your word and dig into who are you really, Jesus? Not to know facts, not to be able to teach a Bible study or answer some quiz, but to know you. To know what it is to really walk the road you walk. Father, I want that. I pray that my friends that are here, my kids that are here, my wife, that we would all want that. Will you show us what that is? You are an unprecedented savior. Your word is powerful. Will you speak with your word and hearts right now? If there's somebody here who needs to trust your son Jesus as savior, God, I pray that they would turn to you right now in this moment. Just acknowledge your sin to Him and say, I'm going to ask your son Jesus to be, I don't even know everything. Matthew didn't know it all. Peter didn't know it all when they turned. But you know you're turning to him and that he's going to take control and you're surrendering to him and that you're a sinner and you need a savior. And if you know that, you know enough and hand him the keys like we saw in that video he's in charge you go whatever he says wherever he says to go whatever he says to do you're going to do it because he is the only way that your sins are ever going to be forgiven he's the only cure to your disease he's the only doctor that can help you and so turn to him some of you are Christians and you've been following him but man the darkness calls doesn't it and we want to hide the Christian life we're going to see more next week is a life of repentance it's not just one time We keep repenting. That's what stops you from being a hypocrite, by the way. You sin, but acknowledge that sin. And he promises, if you think you don't have any sin, you deceive yourself. But do you confess your sin? He's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive you. Not once you clean up your act. The courage in following Jesus is not to clean up your act before you get to him. It's to turn to him and let him do whatever he wants to do. And changing your heart. And he can give life. And you turn to him. Just keep turning to him if you're turning to him in this room. I know I'd be up here. I said I'd be up here to talk to you. If you want to go into the Holy Land, I'll do that. But if you want to trust Jesus or you want to talk about that, uh, you can skip to the front of the line. I'll never talk to you. Father, I pray. I pray for healing and physical needs that are here. I pray for transformation of thinking, people that are believing things that aren't true about themselves, about you, about everybody else. God, I just pray that you would bring light into darkness. It's in Jesus' name I pray.